I am Lisa of Two Sober Chicks, part of the dynamic duo known as Julie and Lisa, who bring you our regular podcast. This is our speaker series edition where we borrow guests from the home group AA Solution Seekers online. Please enjoy. And we do record our speaker meetings. Mike, take it away. Everybody, my name is Mike, and I am definitely an alcoholic. Um, my sobriety date is August 11, 2012. I have a sponsor who has a sponsor. And uh, my home group is Common Solution out of Staten Island, New York. Um, we meet Wednesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find us on o, um, OIAA if anybody would care to join us. Um, as a matter of fact, my sponsor is here today. Thank God he showed up. I love him. Hey, good morning, buddy. I know it's early for you. How you doing? Uh, what it was like, what happened, and what I'm like now, and disclosed in a general way. And the instructions are in the book. All the instructions are in the book. It tells us right away what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to share. Uh, I did not know that my first time coming through AA. I did not pay much attention to the book, um, but I do today. I have no choice. I have no choice but to uh, pay attention and uh, remember and memorize and try to live this stuff and seek. And, and this is the other reason I love this meeting. It's solution seekers. And that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm so I'm seeking my solution. I'm seeking my pathway to God on a daily basis. Um, what it was like, I, uh, I grew up <clears throat> in a family that, um, my mother had me when she was 17. My parents were never married. Um, my dad stuck around long enough to have another kid with my mom. And uh, my biological sister had a relationship with my father, and I never did. I was raised by my grandparents who took me away from my mother because they thought she was too young. Mm -hmm. My, uh, I love my grandparents very much. My grandmother, who uh, had raised all her kids and was looking to... Uh, to a nice uh, ability to just work and uh, and uh, you know have time for her and her husband to do the things they wanted to do. Had to, in her mind, raise a grandchild. I mean, she loves me. She still loves me, but um, was very angry and was very angry with my mother and was very angry with me. I, I I'm not sure. I'm not going to guess as to why she was angry, but she was just angry, and a, a lot of that anger, unfortunately, was directed at me. And uh, there was uh, some physical abuse. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, uh, I didn't understand what was going on, and I, I had internalized that, thinking there were, at, at that point, as I reflect on it, um, I see it as. I internalized it and it became a part of me that there was something wrong with me. And that was, I see it, that it was uh, something wrong with me. And it was, I, that uncomfortability started at an early age because of these things. Um, progressed. I mean, my progression was, was, was like linear. It just happened. I mean, we would have parties at the house and the family and I come from a very large family would come together and people would drink beers. And I, my uncle would sip, I'd sip beer from his Budweiser. And I mean, I didn't like the taste, but boy, did I like how it made me feel really did. And I would go back for more. I'd want more. And they would be like, oh, no, no, you can't have more. And I would, you know, try to steal the beer and just sip it. And they were like, they would yell at me and be like, no, and I'd get myself in trouble. 
but even at an early age, I was already like, wow, this made me feel good. And I'd be a little tipsy from the few sips that I got and I'd spin around the yard and have fun and, you know, be a, I've noticed myself now looking at it again, retrospective, I would, I was a different child. I would, I was happier. I was, you know, even then I was seeking the solution of what was wrong with Mike and what was wrong with Mike is I hated myself and wanted to be anybody but me. I couldn't deal with me and I didn't want people to know me. And uh, I was very secretive and I was a quiet child. Um, growing up, that's one of the things that people used to comment about me. You don't talk much. And I said, no, because I was afraid of giving myself away the real Mike. Um, uh, yeah, I was afraid, constantly afraid. My whole life, I would lived in fear. <clears throat> the, uh, the real progression started when I, uh, my grandparents decided to move me to New Jersey. I moved to Jackson, New Jersey, I think, uh, in the late eighties, I believe it was the late eighties or maybe early. Yeah, it was late eighties. And, uh, see, I had been a, a problem child. I had been, uh, kicked out of my school for emotional issues and, uh, they had put me in a special school in, uh, Staten Island and my and my grandmother would have to drive me back and forth to school because there was no busing. And uh, she didn't quite like that because she was working full time and she had to change her. She was a night owl. So she liked to work at night. So she had to change from her night job to her days so she could take me to school and then go to work. And then I dropped me off and then pick me up. And it just wasn't convenient for her. And uh, I, I, I was getting in trouble all the time, getting into fights, so her idea was to move me from New York City to Jackson, New Jersey. And the only thing to do in Jackson was to get in trouble. The only thing to do there is to drink and drug. I mean, it's boring. There's nothing going on in that place. There was a skating ring and there was a high school and that was about it. I mean, there was nothing. We got a, a uh, an arcade. We got an arcade and that was like the big deal. We got an arcade just when I moved in. It just opened like a few weeks after I got there and... The police were there like every single night and they would chase the kids and the arcade eventually shut down because they called us roving gangs and they were going to nip it in the butt early and all this stuff. And the arcade got shut down and there was no place for us to go. So we would go out into the woods because if anybody's familiar with, with South Central Jersey, it's just pine barrens. And we could go out into the woods and make a bonfire and we could drink and you really couldn't see it. And, uh, when I first got to Staten Island, I, I met a few kids and uh, we would come to my house and they would sneak into my house, into my bedroom and bring bottles of beer. Like, and you could literally hear it going up the stairs, the jangling. And it, we'd get in the room and everybody would start drinking. I'd have to open the window to try to get rid of the smell. And we just, I'm looking at it. I'm like, is this what we do here? This is how I make friends. And I, I started to drink again. And instantly I started feeling better, but I was still scared. It didn't have the desired effect that I wanted. I couldn't reach that 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 freedom that Bill talks about when he first took his drink, that that I had arrived feeling. I, I didn't get that right away. I would have to drink to excess. I would have to drink so much that I could barely walk. I could barely stand. And the fear was still there, these few beers. And I'm just like, and I'm craving more and I couldn't get it. Until I discovered 
how to open up my parents' liquor cabinet because I called them my parents. Those are my grandparents, my parents. And uh, they'd use a butter knife. They had a dead bolted, so I would get it open. And, you know, magically the, the liquor, the very expensive liquor, would start to vanish out of this this big closet of liquor because, again, I come from a large family, and they would all come to Jackson, and they would party in the back. And my, my grandparents wanted everybody to be happy, so we had liquor. And uh, we would steal it, and I would drink it, and I would drink it with my friends because th thinking back, they really weren't my friends. They were just drinking buddies. And uh, I'd continue down this path, and I would experiment with other substances, mostly the green stuff that you smoke. And uh, between the, the points where I wasn't drinking, I was using that to manage myself because I could not exist without it i couldn't exist without something in my system i was just so so scared of everything and i couldn't talk to people i couldn't even talk to girls i mean i was felt so worthless even with drinking and drugging i could not speak to a girl i mean people thought i was literally gay because i had no confidence i wasn't instilled with confidence as a child i was constantly told how stupid i was and how uh, i i made to feel i well i made myself feel like i was such a burden because nothing i did was right you know, people would say things like, see, he's not our kid. They would say, and those memories would stick in my head. Not that I blame them. I know they did the best they could, but I didn't understand. And I wanted to just, I wanted to run away from myself. And I wanted to feel anything other than that. And I wanted to feel confident. I wanted to be like the kids that I was with. I wanted to be able to go out and, and get a girlfriend and, and, and be like other people. When I couldn't be. And I, I was constantly feeling like I needed to be like them. Uh, when I hit this progression during this teenager, it just got worse and worse and worse. I got kicked out of the high school and I was sent to another special school. And I remember the night before the special school that I went to, I drank a giant bottle of vodka. It was supposed to be shared amongst the people who I was with. I drank it all by myself. And we got out of the car, and I'm, I'm now completely inebriated to the point where I'm just I could feel my skin drying out. That's how, I mean, I must have been like alcohol poisoning. I had to have had it that night, desperately, and I'm puking my brains out. And uh, I, I tried to make it to uh, a storm drain so I wouldn't throw up. And I don't know why I, I thought in my head I'm like I need to get to the storm drain, but. That, that's where my brain went. I didn't want to make a mess. I didn't want to cause people problems. I didn't want to single myself out. I didn't want people to look at me or or see me at all because I just wanted to drink and sort of be accepted. But I was afraid everybody would see the fraud that I was, that I wasn't this person that they were. I wasn't you know cool like they were and all these other things. And I, I wanted to get to Storm Street so I could kind of hide that I was throwing up. I didn't make it. I puked all in the street. It was everywhere. The things I had eaten before, and it was just, and I just couldn't stop. The next day, I had gone to the school my first day, still wearing the same clothes that I was wearing the night before, reeking of alcohol, reeking of sweat. I had to put my head on the desk, and I was just, I, I felt like I was going to die. I felt like I was going to die. I'm hungover so bad, and my only thoughts inside this new school was god i can't wait to get home so i can drink again and i just want and it's a horrifying experience being a teenager like 16 17 and that's my those are my only thoughts
I don't care about school. I don't care about any of these things. Um, some part of me, I don't know what part of me, had an inclination I might be, I might have a problem. So I kind of sort of put alcohol to the side for a little bit. And I, I just started using that green substance I had discussed and, and to manage it. And eventually I did manage it. And I just, and it, what happened was I ended up smoking like a chimney all the time around the clock as often as I possibly could. And when I couldn't, oh my God, the uncomfortability, that restless, irritable discontent at such an early age just, just came out. And I was miserable and I would take it out of the people, my, my little cousins. And I would like one of them, I would, I literally would try to play video games with and try to create a bond. And when he would beat me, I would literally punch him as hard as I could in his leg, like leaving bruises because I was just so angry that this kid had the audacity to, to, to beat me and be better at something than me. And I'd feel so angry. And I, I didn't even know why I felt these this way. Um, at 17, I was thrown out of school entirely, and my grandfather brought me into uh, construction. And I started working at construction, but I needed to graduate from high school. So I would go to New York City from Jackson, and I would work in the construction business. And uh, I hadn't even gotten a book yet. I just started. And uh, at night, I have to come home and do my studies, which were a joke. They just wanted me to get out of the school system. So it was barely anything. It was more like eighth grade stuff. You know, like, and I just had to pass the class that last year. And I did a little bit of nonsensical work that I had to do. And I passed the class and I went to work full-time and I did this for a few years, but I was, was an alcoholic. I didn't know I was an alcoholic and I couldn't manage to go to work every day. I couldn't manage to do anything. Here's this 18 year old kid being given an opportunity with an amazing job. And I couldn't show up. I couldn't show up. I mean, that speaks to my unmanageability of my life. I, I was given something that other adults would kill for. I'm making top dollar. I'm now, I'm a member of a union and I couldn't show up. I'd work two, three days a week, randomly. I'd always show up on Thursday or Friday to get that check, and then I'd go home, and I would get wrecked with whatever little money I had to the point where my, my grandmother and my grandfather got a car, and uh, it was financed, and they would have to take my check from me and then give me a stipend each week. Otherwise, I couldn't pay for my car, and I couldn't pay for my insurance. I was living rent-free. I was paying about $100 a week, basically, just to give my mother some pocket money but all the rest of that money went towards my stuff and she'd give me a little bit of money and i'd have to manage with that and i would be an incredible sob at work because i couldn't drink and i couldn't do my other stuff and i'm just nasty and i'm telling people off and i'm don't you know who i am my grandfather is blah 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 and i, I just this incredible ego that i had which carried on carried on and carried on and carried on at 20, I think 22, maybe 23, I had this incredible idea just before um, the millennium, like 1999. And yeah, it was like 1999. I decided that I was going to move from Jackson and I was going to go to Syracuse and I was going to go do this and that. And I had met a girl 
on the internet, which I'd never met before. And I had decided I was going to go up there and meet her. And I did. And she wanted me to be with her because again, I could not speak to women. And this one was like, there was a wall so I could talk to her over the internet. And we created a so-called bond and I, I went up there a few times and she wanted me to come up there and I was going to move up there and I was going to go get a job and I was going to get one of those efficiency apartments and I was going to go to college. And that was the whole plan. And she ended up convincing her mother to let me move in. And boy, was that a mistake because uh, they were, of, and I don't want to judge them, but it's the truth because I lived there. They were a very extraordinary dysfunctional family. And this young lady who I just met, who I'm moving in with, was extremely dysfunctional herself. And uh, we were a hostage situation made in heaven because I was terrified and I, I wanted to have a girlfriend so desperately I was willing to accept this person who was emotionally and physically incapable of being in a relationship and didn't know the first thing about it. And neither did I. And I went up there and I went to college and I... I something happened while I was up there. I wasn't drinking and I wasn't doing drugs. I was smoking cigarettes like a chimney, but I discovered that I liked school. I really liked school. And I, I realized that I had a brain in my head and I went and I, I, I just, I would get these compliments from my teacher, from my, these professors, I should say, for, for the work I had and the efforts that I did. And they would tell me, you're doing really well. And I'm like, don't you know who I am? I mean, I could barely make it through high school and I could barely do this and I could barely do that. And and then I got into chemistry and my chemistry professor was a, I hate to see, he studied and his specific degree was in quantum mechanics. And I would talk to him and he would say, Mike, you have a future in the sciences. And I'd be like, are you crazy? And he'd be like, no, you're, you're smart. You, you ask the right questions. Most of the people here don't. You have something. And I'm like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And I got this guy again in my second year and he's like, he he's he's trying to he took a special special interest in me so did the, the astronomy professor that i had he took a special interest in me he would talk to me and call me into his office and want to sit and have a conversation with me and talk about what the new breakthroughs in science and i would give him my input and he'd say you know we'd talk about these things and then the girl who i was living with her mother passed away and things became very stressed in the house and this was in my second year of, of going to attempt to finish school and get a degree and all those other things. And then I would, my plan was to move to Syracuse University because they had the option of if you went to the community college, you could go to Syracuse and take all your credits and you would transfer over and you get a discount. And I was living there long enough that I got the, the, the county citizenship and everything. I transferred my license and the whole shebang. My mother passed away. And uh, my the girl who was with me broke down basically, just stopped functioning because her mother passed away, and my alcoholism came back. Things became emotional. Things became things I didn't want to deal with. I couldn't know how to feel, and I started feeling the restless cerebral discontent came back. And I went to my professor and says, "I'm going to take a break from school." 
and uh, I'm going to take a break from school. And he said to me, Mike, that is the biggest mistake of your life. If you leave now, you will not come back. And I said, no, I got this. I'll be back. And he said, Mike, you are talented. You have something. Please don't leave. And I said, okay. And I left. In my head, I didn't realize it. And again, I have retrospective. I look back on these things. You know, hindsight, 2020, wonderful, wonderful thing. I wish I had this insight at those moments when I needed it the most because and again, this reflects on my unmanageability, my powerlessness in my life. I, I can't, I don't have the, I can have the ability to recognize and look at things from other people's perspective. And I can see you and I can say, oh, those are your problems. And this is that, but looking at myself, who the hell wants to look at themselves? I don't want to look at myself. I can't figure out what's wrong with me. But I, this guy resonated in my head over and over and over again. And I started drinking and drugging again. I got a job at an Exxon station uh, 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 up on the, on the throughway. And I, I ran into these other kids who were drinking and drugging. And I started hanging around them. And, you know, I wouldn't hang out because I didn't have any friends. Again, I don't like people. But at, at work, I can put on the persona. I can wear the mask. I can be the actor on the stage. You know, I'm from New York City, and I'd have my accent, the thick New York accent, and everybody would say, you know, and I create all these wonderful lies about my life in New York and who I was and this and that, and <clears throat> I could play that role, but I didn't want them close enough to me to actually make friends. I didn't have any friends. That was the truth, man. I didn't have any friends until I, until last year. Not any real friends. I, I I didn't know what a friend was. I didn't know how to have a friend. I didn't know how to love enough to be a friend to somebody else. And that was Mike's real decline. That's where my alcoholism really took off. I hadn't really, I, I just periodically drank. But when I wanted to, when I did drink, I couldn't control it. And when I was controlling it, I couldn't enjoy it. But the green substance, man, I thought that was fine. It was natural. It was this. It was that. I had this one kid at the, the shop whose family, they were Germans, and he would bake brownies with it. And he would, he grew it, and their family grew it in the house. I'd get it from him. And occasionally I would smoke, and then I would feel better about myself. I'd be calm. Excuse me. Excuse me. I'm sorry. And I would be relaxed. And I would, I'd feel better. And then I'd go home to this this poor girl who was absolutely miserable because her mother died, and I could not be of use to her, and I could not do anything for her. And at this point, we were just hostage taking with each other, and we're fighting, and we're screaming at each other, and we're blaming each other. And I tried to escape. I tried to escape, and I go back home to my grandparents, and I, I packed up as much of my stuff as I could, and I went back to Jersey. At this point, my parents, my grandparents had sold the house. My grandfather retired, and uh, they had moved to another part of Jersey, and I and they had a much much smaller house with a bedroom and a guest bedroom, and I moved into the guest bedroom. And I had put all my stuff in their garage, which took up the entire garage. And they would graciously let me stay there on the condition that I was going to get a job and get out of there as soon as possible. And within two weeks of me being in that house trying to find a job, which I did get a job, and uh, my girlfriend showed up at my grandparents' house with her father and basically her father dropped her off at my house with her stuff and just left. And then, you know, she's living with me and I'm trying to get away from this poor girl because 
I didn't know how to break up the relationship. I didn't know how to end it. I thought that's what you did. You just left. And that's how it ended. And here she is. And I'm like, oh, poop. I guess we're stuck together. And uh, I tried anything and everything to uh, get a job and get out of the house and try to talking to her that this is probably not a good idea. I got regular jobs, not like the construction job at first. I got regular jobs. And I was working at a Wawa. I was working at uh, McDonald's. I was trying to, I got a job at, um, I think, Staples. I can't remember. The time frame's a little wonky back then. Again, my brain memories are a little of when those events happened. And then uh, my grandparents decided that they wanted to move to the Carolinas. So they bought a condo. They went down there to test it out and they loved it. And they stayed down there and had a house built. This was in South Carolina. They had a house built in North Carolina. So they stayed in the condo till their house was completely finished. And they moved into that house and told me I could have the condo because I was having such difficulty. I had no ability to really make any real money. I was uh, not really drinking, but I wasn't not drinking. I was drugging, but I wasn't really drugging. I was smoking a lot of that stuff. And that was my only real crutch. So in my head, you know, I'd heard the word alcoholic before, but I was like, like I said earlier, something inside of me knew I had problems, but I didn't kind of knew I was an alcoholic. So I was going to avoid the alcohol for a little bit. And uh, yeah, no, again, the unmanageability and all these things. We had moved down there. I'm living off my grandparents. That lasted for two years. I was still doing the green stuff. And then uh, I, I was like, I hate this place. And I wanted to move back to New York City. My grandparents gave me a large sum of money to move back. And I went back. I got back into the union. I started working again. And within a few weeks of being up there and working, I started drinking and drugging again. The pressure was on. Um, I'm dealing with people I can't stand. The, the atmosphere is all drinking and drugging in New York City construction. And that's what we did. And that's what I did. I couldn't manage to go to work every day. And and I uh, eventually was asked to leave the apartment. And I moved over to the other side of the island. And I was there for a while. And I could not manage to go to work anymore. At all. To the point where I was going to be homeless. And we we're talking about going to shelters. And I couldn't work. because I couldn't work. I was just constantly messed up. I could not work. They, nobody was hiring me anymore. Nobody wanted to take me on. They, the unions told me, no, we until you straighten up, you can't do anything. And then a family member with the kindness in their heart allowed me to live into their move into their basement apartment with my girlfriend, who and I were constantly fighting. And I lived there for two years with her. Until we finally broke up. She said, I have had enough of you. And I said, good, because I've had enough of you too. Uh, her, at that point, her father had passed away. We had gone up to um, Syracuse again to to do uh, the funeral and say our goodbyes to him. And we come back to, to, to Staten Island. And uh, we had constantly been fighting, constantly been fighting. So she had enough of me. And I said, good, I had enough for you. At that point, I had gotten my job back again. I had just started working again. I had, I had uh, this was the first job I had back for a while. And it was just getting on my feet. I was just making enough money. I was actually showing up to work every single day this time.
albeit I was still drunk and everything and I was high and whatever else I was doing, but I was able to do it most of the time after work. Every night I had to at least smoke something. I had to because I couldn't do it. Otherwise, I could not manage to go to work if I didn't do those things. I took her to Madison Square Garden. We went downstairs into the train station. I put her on a train and I made sure I did it myself that she was going to get on the train and go to Syracuse all while crying, all begging at this point that it's not over. I'll, I'll, I'll shall work on. I'm like, no, you said it was over and it's over. And I felt so betrayed and I acted so pompous and I said all these nasty things. And I said, I got her on the train and I went to work and I broke down at work. And I told one of my coworkers what had happened. And I said, you know, my relationship had, had ended and I, I, need, I said I needed a minute. And I walked around the block and I was just bawling out, crying that I had lost whatever this was. But I was also crying because I was relieved because now I didn't have anybody to watch me. And now I could self-destruct. Um, the next day, I came back to work again. I felt, you know, a little bit more emotionally closed off. And somebody had said something to me. This very large Spanish man who was the foreman for the Lantas, which Lantas is almost like iron workers they tie up. And I threatened to hit him in the head with a freaking shovel. Like, literally... I said, get the F away from me. I'm going to pick up the shovel. And I'm going to crack you in the head. And then you're just going to be dead. And I won't have to deal with you anymore. And they're all just staring at me. Because I was the guy who really didn't talk much. But the gloves come off. I didn't have nobody I had to be responsible for. Now I could self-destruct completely. And the day after that, I didn't show up for work. And the day after that, I didn't show up for work. The day after that, I didn't show up for work. And then I just continually till I lost the job. I got a check in the mail. I was getting phone calls from the union bosses. I was getting phone calls from this person and that person from the job. And I wasn't answering any of it. A friend of mine who worked with me in the union, this really nice guy who I'd become one guy who I actually became friends with, who was a addict. <clears throat> he passed away. And I couldn't manage to get to his funeral in Queens. I just was like, that's nice. I answered the phone. I was like, what? Somebody said, this person had passed away. I said, oh, that's sad. And he said, well, the funeral. I was like, and I hung up on the guy. I didn't care. I didn't care. I didn't care about myself. I didn't care about all I wanted to do is be left alone. And I wanted to do what I was doing until the bitter end. I, I wanted to die. I'd become suicidal. I'd become rampantly suicidal. And I stayed that way for a, a minute. I couldn't tell you the exact amount of time because time just tended to blend together at that point. Days became weeks, weeks became months. I can't tell you exactly how long I was down there. And then I got the good idea that I was going to walk down. If anybody's familiar with New York, I was going to walk. There's a major thoroughfare here on Staten Island called Highland Boulevard. It's extraordinarily busy. There's always traffic. And I got the idea I was going to go down to Highland Boulevard. And you know what? I live next to a train station, but my brain said, let's go down to Highland Boulevard and get get hit by a bus instead of jump in front of the train. And I'm going to equate that to being God. Bear with me. This is why I say it's God. 
because I lived next to the train station on Staten Island. I could have easily walked in front of a train and killed myself and been chopped up in little pieces. My brain said, let's go down to the bus stop and let's get walk in front of a bus. And that's how I want to go out. I get to the corner. I see the bus coming. And I don't have the courage to walk in front of the bus. And then I had like this inner voice tell me. Because right down the street, you could see it from Highland Boulevard. There's a hospital. And this voice said, go to the hospital and ask for help. And I did. I found myself like automatically, like on autopilot, walking to the hospital. And I was like, I don't want to go. And it's just go to the hospital. That's what I kept hearing, go to the hospital. And I walked into the emergency room and I, I, stayed, I stood in front of this person and I said, I need help. I want to kill myself. At looking back, the retrospective, the hindsight, that was all God. I had come to terms with that I was going to die that day. And I was saved. I was absolutely saved that day. That was the beginning. I couldn't tell you what date it was. I can't go back and say, oh, and point it on the calendar. This is my, that was the day that I had started to want to do something other than what I was doing. I wanted to change my life. It wasn't the day I got sober and all those other things. It was just the, that was the day. That was the first time I actually felt the presence of something trying to save my life. And some greater than me trying to speak to me from inside because if God is anywhere God is inside of all of us we're the ones who block him off we're the ones who stop listening to him I went to the psych ward I went to the 14 days of the psychiatric ward I told them all about my drinking and drugging um, I stayed there they stabilized me on all this medication they put me into this thing they called a MICA program which is a dual diagnosis for people with drug and alcohol and mental health problems and I stayed there for whatever amount of time and I didn't drink and I didn't drug throughout that time and then I met a girl the girl brought stuff to my house I had something like 38 days. We wrote it on the calendar. We wrote it on the, I wrote it on the, the, the uh, whiteboard, my, my name, and underneath it was my day count. And I was like, look, at it, look, look how great I am. Look what I'm doing. And every day I come in and I change it. And I ended up reusing again. And that was uh, in 2012. That was, and I had all this time past that up until August. That was, I think it was in April. And then I went to an actual treatment center. And that's where August, I was in August and I uh, went to this treatment center. Again, finding myself wanting to kill myself and I was using again and I asked for help. This time I didn't go to the hospital. This time I asked a family member and they got me into the treatment center and I went and I had the 28 days there. The first 14 days, I were hell. The second 14 days, I did not want to go home. I felt safe. I felt like I had finally met people who could understand what I was talking about and they could see that I was having problems and they were all trying to help me because everybody in that place was in some kind of recovery program. I came out. I still didn't go to AA meetings. I went to all kinds of other things and I would do these things and I would go to these programs and then say, she's just go to an AA meeting. And I met a group of people and I went to an AA meeting. And I would go to those meetings where people were not talking about a solution. They were talking about just don't drink or don't do this. 
And then I stumbled upon my home group, which is my home group now. And I heard something different. I heard people who were smiling and they were having fun and they were talking about what they considered a solution. And they were, and I'm looking at them like, these people are a cult. These people are a cult. They're talking about this blue book. And I'm, thank you, Lisa. I know I got five minutes. Appreciate you. And uh, this cult. And I'm like, no, no. No, and I left, and I started going back to those other meetings, but these other meetings didn't offer anything to me. They didn't offer anything to solve the mental craziness that was going on in my head. And this other meeting, that this common solution was talking about God, and they were talking about this, and, and they were talking about these 12 steps, where these other meetings didn't mention any of that stuff, and they were just like, did you do the steps by reading the board? And I was like, okay, yeah, I, yeah that's nice. But something was planted inside of me. Something was drawing me back to that meeting. And I went and I got a sponsor there eventually. I got into service there. I went through the 12 steps because I didn't originally stick around at the first time. This was my first time. And uh, I still wasn't convinced. By being convinced, I have to be rigorously honest with myself. And that was part of my first step. I haven't quite gotten through it. And I had spent two years there. And uh, even with my service commitment, I got my job back again went to work but then the job became more important than my sobriety the uh, i got a new girlfriend a new uh, who uh was wonderful that became more important than my sobriety i met a little girl who was uh became my kid that became more important than my sobriety and i had this idea that i needed to go work and be a dad and do all these things and and i went to work and i would work these outrageous hours 18 20 a day I would work six, seven days a week, and I would never be home. Basically, I had replaced God, who I was trying to find at that point, and uh, AA with being a workaholic. I was no longer an addict and a drug addict, you know, uh, an alcoholic drug addict. I was now a workaholic, and I had just that's what I had done until it didn't work anymore. And I just walked away from AA altogether. I stopped taking people's phone calls. I stopped calling people, and uh, I became a miserable human being at that point. Miserably huge, nasty, restless, real discontent was not, it was an understatement. I was fighting in the street. If I wasn't fighting in the street, I was getting beat up. I was arguing and I was doing all this nasty stuff in the middle of Manhattan, right next to Times Square. And then the day came that I had an accident at work. And this was my second rebirth because that accident, I could no longer work. I was stuck at home and I was cursing God for that accident then the pandemic happened and then my kid went to the psych ward and all the pain and misery over those last six years came up and I just couldn't handle it anymore and I found myself in a person meeting wanting to drink and that scared me so much terrified me But when I first came into A, that mustard seed was planted in my soul that I knew what I had to do. And I kept hearing that voice again, go back to your home group. And I did get a sponsor. And I did tell that person everything and anything. And I do. All I did was follow clear-cut directions. I do what my sponsor does. 
and did. And my life started getting better. Not all at once. Better. See, sobriety is not linear. You're going to have a rough road. It's going to be your journey and your experience. And that's what's been made very clear to me is I found God through the worst time of my life. I needed to. God became the most miraculous thing in my life. My kid lives in a psych ward. Most That would be a normal excuse to drink. My wife had major surgery and I was terrified that she would die. That would be a wonderful excuse to drink. I no longer can work. That would be a wonderful excuse to drink. But now I lean into the program. I have fellowship. I can People I can talk to. People who want to help me. This people in this meeting I love. They absolutely helped me. And uh, that's really where I'm at today. Trust God, clean house, help others. I put other people first today as best I can on a daily basis. And uh, I'm going to shut up. I hope I, I said something that somebody related to. And I hope, I really hope that I, I allowed God to speak through me today. And I hope it wasn't just Mike's ego. I love you guys. That's it. And that was another fantastic speaker from AA Solution Seekers online group. Thank you so much for joining us as we continue to bring you great speaker one after another from Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Lisa. Thanks for joining us.